I just now wanted to say, I really badly wanted to say, turn to Psalms, like out of force of habit. But. <laughs> I uh, was, was texting back and forth with a pastor friend yesterday, and he asked me what I was preaching on, and we were praying for each other, and he said, uh, where are you preaching? I said, Haggai. And uh, I said, we just got done going through a lot of Psalms, and I said, but I feel like I have, as the worship guy, I think I might have a free pass to go back there anytime I want to without, uh, without condemnation. So maybe we'll return at some point. But for now, um, Haggai chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. So you might want to start turning there. It's page 743 in the Pew Bible. And as you go there, I just want to say I've come to realize and value that timelines are really important. Timelines are very important. Knowing when a thing took place or when something was said adds so much understanding as to the true meaning of an event or word spoken, work of art produced, or actions taken. It's valuable information. When something happened and what context is valuable information. That without, you can have all the other facts about the thing that took place and completely misunderstand the meaning of that event without understanding where it is placed on a timeline. Do any digging at all, and you will be surprised to learn of things in our history that were taking place at the same time. So I did a little bit of that this week just to illustrate. Did you know, for example, that the Mona Lisa was painted, the statue of David was sculpted, the Sistine Chapel ceiling was painted, Henry VIII became the King of England, the Protestant Reformation started, and Magellan's crew circumnavigated the globe all within a 19-year span? 1503 to 1522. And if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll learn that none of those things happened in a vacuum. They were all directly or indirectly tied to cultural events that were going on around in that same time, right? So we know, most of you, those things perk your ears up because you've heard about those individual things. But when you place them on a timeline together, you realize the importance of each thing and how they're all interwoven and complex This point is especially important when it comes to understanding Scripture, especially Old Testament Scripture. If you begin reading or seeking to understand the prophets, especially the minor prophets, without understanding the time frame and events they're speaking in the midst of, most likely you will miss very important points that God is making, was making, and is still making to His people. The minor prophets. The minor prophets. They're they're that collection of Small little short books right at the end of the Old Testament are often, in Bible reading plans, they're kind of treated like flyover country because we don't take the time to understand when and to whom they were speaking. So we're left puzzled about what in the world these these lunatics, these raving prophets might have been talking about and what what they're trying to convey. But with just a little bit of context we see that most of these minor prophet books were written as God was speaking to his people in dark times. In the timeline of the Israelites, it's later in their history, as we're approaching what we call the 400 years of silence, which are the 400 years just before Christ comes to earth, but there is no prophetic utterances. The book of Malachi is the last in that chronological series, and it took place about 400 years before Christ's birth. 
God has been saying to his people, the kingdom of heaven is going to manifest itself on earth, and he's been saying it since Genesis. But now, as time draws closer to Jesus coming, the Lord is no longer whispering about the Messiah. He is full-on shouting. This is not, so therefore the minor prophets are not flyover territory. If we take the time to appreciate these little tiny books, there is great potential for our growth and our hope, and a lot of information to be gleaned about the nature of the kingdom of God and what God is trying to do. So let's look at the book of Haggai. We know about Haggai. What we know about Haggai is found in this book, and it's found in Ezra chapter 5. So just to orient you very quickly, after the establishment of the monarchy in Israel, I'm just going to give you a timeline. Ready? Quickly. I'm going to rattle it off. Monarchy in Israel, we had Saul, then David, then Solomon. And then after, the kingdom, after Solomon, of course, the kingdom divided between Judah to the south and Israel to the north. They staggered on for centuries. <clears throat> Israel to the north, generally in disobedience, a little bit ahead of Judah in their disobedience. Israel really didn't have any good kings, and Judah had a handful of good kings. That came to an end with the Babylonian captivity, where Jerusalem was finally captured in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. They were taken off into exile for 70 years, just as the prophet Jeremiah had said they would be. Babylon made a practice of taking the best and brightest conquered people and scattering them all over the empire. That's because it's harder for people to rebel, number one, without their best and brightest, and number two, when they're not in their home. Thus you have Daniel and Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar that you have heard about from Pastor Matt's preaching in the book of Daniel. Now, spoiler alert, in the next chapter of Daniel that Pastor Matt will preach, chapter 5, the mantle of superpower in the Middle East will be taken from the Babylonians and given to the Persians. The Persians had a little bit different philosophy when it came to conquered captives. They found they could let them go live in their homelands collect a little tribute for, from them, and everyone got on nicely. Everything went, went splendidly. The Persian emperor Cyrus, Cyrus decrees in 539 B.C. that exiles could return and start rebuilding their temple. They built, they got back to Jerusalem, the first returns from the exiles. They got back, they built a, a kind of an altar, and some foundations for the temple, but then they got distracted and began work on their own homes and businesses and estates. And now it's about 19 years later, in 520 B.C., and the word of the Lord comes to Haggai. Now it is Haggai. I've heard some people call it Haggai. That's incorrect. It's Haggai, prophet. Haggai is a post-exilic prophet, and his entire recorded ministry lasted only a few weeks in the year of 520 B.C., this is the last period where God is speaking through the prophets to his, period, to his people. So that's the setup. They come back, they build the foundation and an altar so that they can start kind of doing some sacrifices. Then it gets away from them. The word of the Lord comes to Haggai 19 years later. And there are four basic prophetic utterances or oracles that take place in two very short chapters in the book of Haggai. And there's a brief narrative response to the first oracle. We're going to cover oracle number one and narrative response in chapter one of Haggai today. So let's read that. If you would look to the Word of God, the book of Haggai. Haggai. <clears throat> 
In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies excuse me, in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you have never enough. You drink, but you are never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you, be, you excuse me, and when you brought it home, it blew. I blew it away. Why? Why? Declares the Lord of Hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, on what. The ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. That's the oracle. Now the narrative. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. This is the word of the Lord, and may it bless your ears and grow us up in all ways, Christ. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to, there's only just a couple points to this text. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is that this prophecy is directed at the leaders. Do you see that? The very beginning, very top, who does this prophecy come to? The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Zerubbabel was in the Davidic line, but he was not king. It's important. He was a governor, or basically a puppet ruler because this was another tactic by the Persians that they figured out, hey, if we put a foreigner over these people, they are not going to like it. So they understood enough about Jewish culture that they wanted a Davidic king, they wanted a king in the line of David, a ruler that was related to David in his line to be sitting on the throne, right? And I, that's heavy scare quotes, throne, because he was a puppet. He was a governor. Even the scripture calls him governor, not king. 
and Joshua would have been the high priest related. That's why they that's why they name his dad Jehozadak there because they can trace the lineage from Joshua back to Aaron. Okay, so they're they're keeping things in accordance with their laws, right? They're they're everything's they they at least the outer appearance of things is that everything is restored, right? But it's not. The point I want to draw up this quick application, we'll move quickly. We won't dwell here, but except to say that when you desire authority, like Zerubbabel and Joshua found themselves in, you are desiring responsibility and accountability. It's one thing to win an election. It's another thing entirely to govern, right? It's one thing to be thought well of in a church and become an elder. It's a whole other thing to actually shepherd. It's one thing to create children. It's another thing entirely to be a father and rightly rule over a household. Authority means responsibility. And it's embedded in this text. Because when Haggai comes to the people of God and God is knocking at the door, he comes and says, I want to talk to Zerubbabel. I need to address Joshua. Men, you should aspire to these roles of oversight. Don't let it scare you away. Don't let our culture beat you down and tell you that you're not meant for oversight, because you are. Desiring the office of overseer in your home, in your church, in your society, Scripture calls that noble and good and rightly ordered. God made you for it. But if something is amiss under your authority, especially in your own home, the buck stops with you. Stops with you. And if God comes knocking, the prophecy comes to you. It's good. It's right. That's the way it's supposed to be. But count the cost. Understand the weight and the responsibility of authority. Now, the primary point. There's a lot of setup that has to happen because there's a lot of biblical theology going on in this passage. So let's just, let's just visit it again. The economy was a wreck, right? Things weren't going well for the Israelites. They were sowing it seeds and farming the same land that was supposed to flow with milk and honey, but it wasn't flowing with milk and honey. Haggai portrayed their distress with bold strokes. He said, you have planted much but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, and you don't have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages, but the wages are put into a purse with holes in it. Harvests have been poor. Inflation was rampant. They were back on the land, but like I said, it was not flowing with milk and honey. And at first glance, you would think, way to not be sensitive to your, your cultural surroundings there, Haggai. Probably not the best time to be preaching a message chastising people for fixing up their houses. They were in a recession. Yet this wasn't Haggai's words. This was the word of who? The Lord. His timing. But it was in this context, God spoke and Haggai preached, telling the people to rebuild the temple of the Lord. Why? 
Because it would please him and honor him, the Lord says. It would be an acceptable offering to him. Why do you think that the rebuilding of the temple would be an acceptable offering to God? It was just a building, right? Honestly, if you look back at Scripture, you see when David first brought up the idea of, God, you need a, you, you've been dwelling in tents. Let me build you a temple. God said, no, no, no. That's just a building. God wasn't all that excited about that. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So why would God care so much about the temple being built now if it's just a building? I take a strong assist from Mark Dever's commentary here on Haggai. He said this, From the people's standpoint, the rebuilt temple would be a clear public statement that they still wanted and valued God. It would, be, it would indicate that he was a higher priority than everything else, clamoring for attention in their lives. It would mark their faith in God and their recognition of him as important on a national level. From the nation's standpoint, it would be a sign that the God of Israel had not gone out of business when Jerusalem fell. Because in these days, they, most of the Middle Eastern tribal cultures would have closely associated their God with their geography. And so conquered people conquered God, right? So this would have asserted not conquered God, very much still God. It would publicly vindicate the Lord Yahweh before the world. But from God's standpoint, the temple was a visible sign of the covenant that bound him and his people together, and it represented his continuing favor for them and his continuing design to fulfill his promises that he made to their forefathers, to David, to Solomon, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. The temple was a symbol of God's living among the Israelites and not abandoning them. And furthermore, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah prophesied the rebuilding of the temple after it was destroyed. The Babylonians took Jerusalem, they set fire to the temple, and took the people away into captivity. These two events would have been associated in the minds of the Israelites. When the temple was destroyed, the people were scattered. Now God, so you had temple destroyed, people scattered. Now God had regathered the people, so the reversal of that would have been gather people, rebuild temple. And he did gather the people, yet no temple was built. It should have been obvious to them should have been first to them, but they didn't. They didn't do it. I mean, they kind of did it, right? And their apathy about the Lord infected the rest of their existence. They sowed and didn't reap. Not only symbolically was God not dwelling with his people, because of their lack, at, lax attitude and lack of regard from him, he had withdrawn his hand of blessing from them. It was almost as if he was saying to them, okay, you don't want me? Think you'll get along fine without me? Okay, have at it. This is not an uncommon way for God, if you look through Scripture, to interact with His people. He never abandoned them entirely. Never did God, never has God 
broken his promises, and abandoned his people entirely. But he would withdraw from them. Consider Joshua 7, after the people of God destroyed the city of Jericho. Right? They go and they conquer this massive city. I mean, it's like the New York City of the, of the Middle East, right? It's huge, huge walls, highly fortified, heavy armies. This little nomadic people goes in. The walls fall, they conquer. They're flying high, baby, right? And the next mark on their map is Ai, the city of Ai, which is comparatively nothing. So much so that Joshua says to the troops, you know what, let's, it's not really worth sending the whole army. Let's just send like a couple thousand of our, of our best troops. They can go there, crush Ai, and we'll, then we'll move on, right? This is a blip, supposed to be a blip on the conquering map for the people of Israel. And they get hammered by Ai. So what's Joshua do? He goes before the Lord and he says, Lord, what what in the world is this? I thought you were with us. I thought none could stand before us. And he falls on his face and he laments and God says to him, almost like a father addressing the toddler that's throwing a fit in front of him, he says, get up off the ground. Have I not told you that if you obey me, And you follow after my ways and my instructions. I will be with you. There's something wrong. Your mind shouldn't have automatically gone to, God has abandoned us. Your mind should automatically have gone to, how how have we broken covenant with God? God told them, you didn't win because I am not with you, and I am not with you because I gave clear instructions on how I wanted to be worship. No selfish individual plundering. It's all consecrated to me. You don't get to take this land. I'm going to give it to you. And then they find out there was this guy named Achan, right, who had selfishly hoarded plunder. And once they found out, God said, purge it. Get, get rid of him and his family. And they did. And guess what they did to AI? One. Because his hand was with them. Or consider one more example. A generation before this, when the people of God came to the edge of the promised land for the first time, and they sent 12 scouts in. And 10 of those scouts came back and said, we are like grasshoppers. Right? The Nephilim. This is the, they're, these, these crazy giants are dwelling in the land before us. We cannot do this, except for Joshua and Caleb came back and said, we can do whatever we, we can do whatever God wants us to do, because God is what? With us. But they rebel against Moses and Aaron and throw a big hissy fit, and they don't go in. And then God, so then God speaks through Moses, and Moses tells the people, God has said that since you have no faith in him, since you have been apathetic about his power, I'm going to just let you die. I'm going to let this generation pass away. I'll I'll take the land, I'll give the land to your kids and to Joshua and Caleb because they believed. And then what do they do? Oh, well, 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 wait, we'll, we'll go, we'll go, sorry, our bad. And then through the words of Moses, God says to them in Numbers chapter 14, do not go up, for the Lord is not among you. He is not with you. Lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by their sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you you. 
They didn't listen. They went anyway, and guess what happened to them? They were slaughtered. Do you see the pattern? The Israelites hadn't returned to Jerusalem in 539 B.C. by the might of their military prowess or by their fantastic economic abilities. They bought their freedom. No, they had returned because the nations rage against each other, because kingdoms rise and fall, and there is still one king with a capital K ruling over all. The very least they could have done was formally recognize who was sitting on the throne and pleaded with him to dwell with his people once again as he did in the days of Solomon and rebuilt the temple, which was their symbol of Emmanuel. It was their symbol of God with us. Now, I've heard this passage a few times be used time again by pastors wanting to build a new church or pave a parking lot or whatever to lay guilt and say, how dare you have a new roof on your house when the church needs a new roof? And if I could be so bold, I think that's really shallow. I think it totally misses the beautiful, deep meaning of Haggai chapter 1. So let's put our biblical theological hats on. Follow me here. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 3. What is the point? In Genesis 3, humanity believed the lies of the evil one and all of creation fell under a curse. It says this, starting in verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. This is when God's talking to Adam. He had already doled out his curse to the serpent. He doled out his curse to Eve about childbearing and so forth. And now he's on Adam. He said to him, Because you have listened to the voice of the serpent, your wife have eaten of the tree, Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Cursed, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Sounds a whole lot like 539 BC to 520 BC in Jerusalem, doesn't it? Pockets with holes in them, toiling with no, nothing to show for it. If the thorns and thistles and sowing without reaping is the default in a Genesis 3 fallen world, who is clearly acting when the curse of the fall is being reversed? God. When humanity actually reaps the blessing of their toil, who is making his face shine upon us? God. Who is giving us unmerited grace, God. Same Jerusalem, under David, and the land flowed with milk and honey. Now they have been back there for 20 years, sowing the same fields, and God lets it go on for 20 years until the prophet Haggai says to them, God says to them, through Haggai, I am not with you. Why? Because they didn't really want him. 
They didn't really want it. Sure, they wanted the milk and the honey, and they thought by their might and their intellect they could squeeze it out of the land. Who owns the cattle on a thousand hill, though? Where's the milk come from? And who gives the bees their work ethic? When you read the first part of Haggai 1 in the way that the Israelites were behaving, you can almost hear the lying hiss of the serpent all over again saying, you don't really need him. And they were believing it. But they did need him. More than they could ever know how much they needed him. And so do you. God was not obligated to them, and he is not obligated to you. Genesis 3, fallen world, default is sowing and not reaping. Cursed. And he is totally justified to draw back and let us wallow in it. He's, if he, was perf- he is perfectly just, but if all he was was perfectly just, that'd be it. But the Lord is what? We learn from the Psalms, right? Over and over and over again. What's his name? He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He dons a robe of righteousness and sovereign power, and its golden threads are spun from mercy and grace. Is God obligated to prosper his people? No. But does he want to? Yes. Is God obligated to turn back the effects of the fall? No. But does he want to? Yes. And is he going to? Yes, yes, and all that he asks from his people is this, worship, just worship me. Turn your affections to me. Orient your lives and your schedules and your families in such a way that rightly recognizes that we have nothing without him, nothing without him. Not, not even common grace things. I feel so spoiled, don't you? Sometimes I, I just, I can't, when God causes me to stop for a little bit and realize what is, eternally what is due me, yes, but even, even in this life, he owes me nothing. He owes us nothing. But we don't even, we, 
I doubt very seriously any of us in this room actually know what it is to be really, really, really hungry or cold. And we don't even have to invent and guess at what he wants from us. The Israelites didn't either. That's kind of why they made that like half-hearted gesture at a, some foundations and a little altar when they came back because they kind of knew what they were supposed to be doing. They, well, not kind of, they did know what they were supposed to be doing. That's why they kind of did it. Gave the nod, the tip of the hat, right? Some foundations and an altar. And for the New Testament church, it's this. We know what he wants. Gather out. Gather out. I'll say it again. Gather out. Your church attendance matters in the same way that the temple mattered in Haggai. Why? Because it shows that you value the Lord. It's like a basic first step in showing you honoring the Lord's day, coming to gather out with his people, first step in showing that you value the Lord. We don't want you here so that we can count you. We want you here because it's your baseline in saying to the Lord, you matter, you matter to me. And furthermore, the passage that Pastor Matt read from Ephesians chapter 2, because your gathering out is your participation in Ephesians chapter 2 when it says that the Lord is building us up as his holy what? Temple. His people. We're told in the New Testament, we know how to worship God. Number one, we gather out. Number two, we preach the word. Number three, we read the word out loud. We sing the word. We pray the word. Do it in your prayer closet. Do it in your home. Do it in your church. Do it in the public square. Desire him the way that he deserves to be desired. That's what God asks of us. Let me pause here and say, I think that American Christianity needs a big old heaping spoonful of Haggai chapter 1. Evangelicals constitute one of the largest voting blocks in America, yet we are impotent in the face of evil. Coins falling through our pockets, sowing and not reaping. There's a line in Moby Dick, I think it's connected to this, there's a line in Moby Dick by Herman Melville that calls the pulpit the prow, like the front of a boat, the prow of the culture. So, so goes the pulpit, so goes the culture. It's behind. If our worship of God is light and fluffy and irreverent, we should not be surprised when the culture is right behind it with their attitude towards the Lord. But I'm not, I mean, I could, that's an easy amens this morning. I'm not here to stump speech on Haggai chapter 1, and I'm not here to preach Haggai chapter 1 to American evangelicalism. I'm here to preach Haggai chapter 1 to Mount Vernon Baptist Church and to Pastor Kurt, and this text splits me in half. My ability to worship him without my sin between me and God cost God blood. This 
gathering that we oftentimes have the habit of treating as kind of optional or extra cost God his son blood suffering and I looked around as I read this passage and thought about it and the connections, and I looked around in my life and I saw a reverence towards the one true God. Partially built temples everywhere. And I thought about how many times on a Sunday morning, Sunday morning has been an afterthought rather than the most important thought. How many times has my dining room table become a half-built altar of apathetic Bible reading? The number of times I wanted to be thought well of by men rather than make my father, with a capital F, Heavenly Father, proud. All over the place, keeping half-hearted form of God-honoring activity, but not really meaning it. Without the heart, it's not worship, it's stage play. And God is not fooled. Or even worse than just stage play, not even making an attempt to honor him at all. How about you? Hmm? How about you? Have you, do you give the Lord his proper place? Have you rightly prioritized the worship of the one true God. That is the weight. That's the weight of this text. Because I, the people, we know what they do, right? We already read it, but we're going to go there again. We know what they did when they felt the weight. The answer to that question I asked you is no, you haven't. And neither have I, and neither did they. So what do they do? Let's look at what they did. Because it's what we do too. Haggai 1, verses 12 through 13. This is the narrative. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Amen. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. They repented. That's what they did. When they saw their irreverence, their disregard for God, when they realized how much they had taken him for granted and the blessings on their life for granted, they repented. In verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, and these were the words of the Lord to God's people when they repented. Let them wash over you. I am with you, declares the Lord. Now, he was never really not with them, right? How do I know that? Well, because they're back in Jerusalem, and because Haggai is preaching to them. 
and because we have the Bible. That's, that's how I know. And because no less than 36 times by my count in the Old Testament, the Lord directly said it or referred to himself saying it, saying, I am with you, I will never leave you. And he meant it. He meant it so much that 520 years after Haggai spoke these words, in the person of Jesus, he became that phrase. And his name will be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And not only that, but he paid the price of our rebellion, that there would therefore be no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, those who repent like the people of Israel repent when the word of the Lord comes to them and says, you have not valued me as you should. And as he physically departed, he sent his spirit. In Matthew chapter 28, how does the Great Commission end? And I am with you, I am what? With you always, even to the end. Even to the end. He himself became the temple, as we read earlier, that will never be destroyed and invited us into the temple building that will never be destroyed. And at the end, even to the end, and at the end, he will dwell with his people and he shall be our God and we shall be his people and we won't need the sun anymore because he will be so much with us, so real to us in our presence as the sunshine is on your face on the first day of spring. Do you feel how much he loves you? Do you feel how much he loves his people? Do you see how patient he is? Do you see how kind he is? Do you feel his love for you in this? Is he worthy of your primary attention? Primary placement? Is worship of him worthy of that? Dads, is he worthy of pointing the eyes of your children and your wife toward him in your home? Is he worthy of that? Mount Vernon Baptist Church, is he worthy of your reverence and wholehearted worship when we gather out each Lord's Day? Is he worthy of that? Is he worthy of a man of God standing in this place and opening the word of God and speaking God's words to us and our submission to that week after week? Is he worthy? There is one application point to this text today. If he is worthy, then finish the altar. Finish the altar. Look at your life. What do I mean by that? Look at your life. Identify apathy when it comes to the worship of the Lord your God. Repent and change it. Repeat. Look at your life. Identify your apathy towards the things and worship of God. Repent for it. Change your patterns. Repeat.
And if you are cut to the heart by Haggai 1, like I have been, let these words wash over you as you endeavor to finish the altars in your life. To you, repentant people of God, the Lord says, what? I am with you. Let's take a few moments to let the word of the Lord rest on us, and then we'll pray.